y'all. We are so excited to be hosting Unite 2024 this coming April 24th through 26th at Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. We have some amazing speakers like Brian Zond, Marlena Graves, Isam Bobolo, and Jenny Waldron joining us. Unite 24 will explore the prophetic church, four ways a church renewed by Jesus can surprise the world. We can't wait to see you in April. To register, head to jesuscollective.com forward slash unite or click the link in the notes below. Well, welcome to all our listening audience. It's I, Paul Walker, one of your co-hosts and people on the journey that is this Jesus Collective podcast. And joining me as co-host today, we have none other than Adam Dyer from across the pond, zooming in all the way from Yeovil, UK. There you are, Adam. Here I am. Great to be with you. A, a, a late substitution, as we call it in English football, a late sub. But um, <laughs> yeah, here I am. Um, and excited to be part of this conversation. I, I too am excited, Adam. And it, it's just so good to hear your voice. You're one of my favorite British people. And that's saying a lot because I just love hanging out with you. Just British uh, people? So yeah, what are your favorite people, I hope? <laughs> <laughs> what are your favorite people? How are things in Yeovil? Yeah. Um, yeah, things are good. Um, like challenging and interesting, and um, all all of those sorts of things. We're in an election year two over here, mm-hmm. as so uh, as as they are in the US, and um, doesn't seem any um, more sane this side of the pond than it does that side of the pond. So um, yeah, like we're trying to navigate and be a blessing to our society, and be a prophetic voice into our society, and bring healing where there's hurt, and um, we're doing it more often than not, so I'll tell you that as a win. Yeah, I heard an interesting stat, Adam, that 75% of the world's population will be voting this year. This year, right. This year. It's crazy. 75%. It is crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. It's going to be – it's it's a year of change, and who knows, who knows what's going to happen. Like, I, I don't know which way any of it's going, but um, – but we could do with God showing up and surprising us in a whole number of ways and a whole number of places. Well, I am very, very honored and pleased to get to introduce our guest today. And that is Pastor Ryan Zahn, who is the founder of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, He's known for his theologically informed preaching and his embrace of the deep and long history of the church. Uh, He's the author of several books, including When Everything's on Fire, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, A Farewell to Mars, and Beauty Will Save the World. Welcome to the podcast today, Brian. Thank you, Paul. Good to be back with you. It is good to be back. And today we're we're discussing what I think is one of one of the best books you've written. I mean, I've read all your books, but I think anytime we can lean into the cross, anytime that we can stare like unflinchingly there, it's just, yeah, I'm really enjoying this one. I I got it last week and I've just been devouring it. So thank you so much. Thank you. To kind of set the table today, uh, we're... We're in the season of Lent, and we thought as a podcast team that we would lean in and and help all our listeners, all our pastors and church leaders that tune in on a weekly basis, just kind of like, here's some things as, as, as we are walking this journey towards the cross. And so to help us, Brian, you're here, and uh, we wanted to open up our conversation today to just 
asked you to share about your experience on the Camino de Santiago. And uh, as you share in the opening chapters of the book, like that experience, something there happened that helped you so essentially one day write this book. And I thought you would, could you share that with us today? Yeah, my wife and I have now walked the Camino de Santiago four times, but the first time was back in 2016. And we began uh, by happy accident on Holy Cross Day. I mean, it wasn't planned, it just happened September 14th. And uh, the first day, you cross the Pyrenees and you arrive in Roncesvalles. Spain is only one place to stay. You stay at this monastery that has large dom dormitories for the pilgrims. And we'd gotten settled in, and I went into the chapel there at the monastery. We were just sitting. I wasn't really, I don't think I was praying. I was just sitting. <laughs> I was tired. It was 15-mile day across the mountains, you know. And uh, But I noticed the crucifix, and I was just sort of looking at it, and I felt like the Spirit gave me some instructions about this pilgrimage that we were just beginning. Mm. I felt like the Spirit say, enter every church you can, pay attention to the crucifix, ask, what does this mean, and don't be too quick to give an answer. And so, Paul, I, I did that. I mean, literally for 40 days, for 500 miles, every chance I got, we would pop into a church, I would pay attention to the crucifix, ask, what does this mean? And not dismiss it with a quick, well, da, 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 da. that's what it is. Mm -hmm. All right. So I could file it away in a theological category of things I know. <laughs> and uh, so it turned out that that first Camino was a 40-day, 500-mile walking meditation on the cross. That's where my thoughts went a lot. And what's interesting, a couple of things that are interesting. Um, we we have crosses and then we have, a, we have crucifixes. Mm -hmm. And... They both have their place, but the cross is is an abstract geometric design. A crucifix tells a story. You look at a crucifix and you go, something's going on here. And what was interesting, because I wasn't seeing the same crucifix every day because we're on the move. I'm seeing different crucifixes, and they're all different. And... So I realized there are many ways of telling the same story. I mean, some of the crucifixes, Jesus was regal and irenic and, and peaceful. Others, you know, you saw the horror of the of the crucifix and, and Christ was very brutalized. And so so it went. And um, and I was careful not to just to be able to say, OK, this is what the crucifixion of Christ means. So in a dismissive way. I just stayed with it. I stayed with the mystery. I stayed with the question mm. for 40 days. And then really for about five years, I was starting to develop some things I wanted to say. But after about five years, I started writing on it. And that's where the wood between the worlds, that's the origin story for the wood mm. between the worlds. So, Brian, like you've talked there about this. Um, what is really a shift from understanding, oh, I know what the crisp means. I have my theology lined up to this like actual um experience of mystery like getting past the need to know or be right or whatever into the yeah yeah but what is what's actually going on here in the spiritual like the mystery of that and then you've connected that to your title like the cross is the wood between the worlds can you expand on that title a little bit more like what is 
how does that draw us into the mystery you're talking about? Well, first of all, the wood between the worlds as a phrase, I think, has literary appeal. It sounds nice. And it's stolen. It's taken from C.S. Lewis. You're going to steal, steal from the best. <laughs> and, uh, I hope you. I hope there's a book coming where you steal from Tolkien. <laughs> well, yeah, there, there's a chapter in this one where I steal right. from Tolkien. But, That's uh, true, yeah. With, with Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia and the magician's nephew, the wood between the worlds is the the wooded grove, the the woods between. It's it's this place in the woods where there are these pools that are portals to other worlds, including Narnia. Well, so that's the phrase, but I, I'm using it differently. I'm saying, okay, no, I'm talking about the singular wood being the cross between the world that was and somewhat right. is. And the world to come. Mm-hmm. So, you know, between the alpha of creation and the omega of an apocatastasis new creation, mm-hmm. in the middle of that is the tau of the cross. There is the world that was and the world to come. And between those two worlds is the wood upon which the Son of God was hung. That's what I mean by the wood between mm-hmm. the worlds. Right. It's, so it's a poetic way of referring to the cross. Uh, because yeah, I, didn't, whole, I didn't want to have a academic, technical-sounding title. Because I was yeah. really just trying to move away from that kind of language as much as I could throughout the entire book. Right. It's interesting. I think eight, nine years ago, I went on sabbatical. Um, and one of the questions I went off with was, okay, so what happens on the cross? I'm really comfortable. It's this comfortable. It's the wrong word. Like, I... I understood. I had an understanding. It was the pivotal moment in history, but some of the some of the reasons I had the theological understanding, I guess, I had of that was like, man, I don't think that answers it. I think there's more going on here than just that particular atonement theory or just that particular cosmic idea or whatever. And so I, I kind of went off to go. I want to go and understand it some more, and. I don't think I got maybe as far as you did. I, I came back with a I'd, I'd done a whole deep dive into Rene Girard, and I mm-hmm. um, which I really liked as a I'd done a dive into Christmas Victor, which I really liked, and I was like, oh, these guys, this this oh, this whole thing makes a lot more sense. But the main thing I came back with was, oh, I'm nowhere on this. Like, there's so much more. <laughs> like, I I thought I I mean I understand it's the pivotal point, but beyond that. Like I'm nowhere. Like this, I'm I'm at the surface of this deep ocean. Like there's so much more for me to like grasp, understand, explore. Like like think about, wrestle with, pray about, study. Like it, I think the thing I came away with was how much I didn't know, rather than how much I did yeah. know. Um, and I think you lean to that when you talk about the cross being kaleidoscopic. Um, well, I talk about. Mm-hmm. Us taking a kaleidoscopic approach to the cross. The, the cross is, I think one of the worst things we do mm-hmm. is want to reduce the cross to a single meaning. Amen. This is the bane of mm-hmm. tidy little atonement theories. Yeah. And so people feel like, you know, you're on Christus Victus team or you're on this team or you're on the moral influence team and, mm-hmm. and everybody's got to pick the one that that is the full meaning of the cross and then fight about it and i just think that's that's terrible and and 
when we settle into a single meaning of the cross and atonement theory is such a such a clinical abstract i don't even like that kind of language when talking about something as mysterious and holy as the cross um, what we do with atonement theories and then we settle on one is well this is what the cross is about thank you i'm done now we can move on to some other subject. And that just seems to be very dismissive. And so one of the metaphors I use is looking at the cross through a theological kaleidoscope. Mm. Um, you know how a kaleidoscope, you look through it, you look toward the light, you see the colors, the designs, the shapes, and then you turn the kaleidoscope and you see you're still looking at the same source of light, but you're getting different refractions and different designs. And so that's what I tried to do. I was, so what do I see now? What do I see now? What do I see now? And I'm seeing minute now. I'm not saying that everything that anyone would say about the cross is accurate. And that's why I was careful to stay in conversation with the long theological history of the crucifixion in the church. And I don't think I strayed out of bounds. I think I stayed solidly within orthodoxy. But there's many things within orthodoxy that you can say about the cross. And so, um, and, and and I like it that kaleidoscope is a Greek, Greek word that just means beautiful form. <laughs> and so, the, the, can we see the cross as a beautiful form? Which is a strange thing, isn't it? That 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 which was originally intended and successfully so to be an image of of psychological terror. I mean, this is how the Romans sub subjugated people. You know, don't mess with us. Challenge the empire, and this could happen to you. So they made it as ugly and horrific as possible, and yet it's become now for millions or billions of people, uh, a beautiful form. Mm. I I love the metaphor of a kaleidoscope. Uh, I think when I think back to some of my seminary training, some of the often used metaphors were like a multifaceted diamond when talking mm -hmm. about the cross. But yeah, I, I love that, that it means a beautiful form, which really reinforces some of the themes you're working through in this book and kind of, you're, you're kind of, advice to pastors and, and folks that are trying to understand the cross. I am curious, though, could you talk a bit more about, like, what can we not say about the cross? Especially because so much of theology, like, the best that we can say about God is at the cross. So, we should, we should tread, we should tread um, with fear and awe as we, as we yeah. speak about it. But, yeah, what are some things that you would say, like, we can't say this about the cross. We can't see the cross as a place of violence within the triune nature of God. Amen. Which is a fancy way of me saying we must not envisage the cross as where God is the source of violent, lethal punishment upon his only begotten son. So on Good Friday, there's lethal violence present, but it doesn't flow from the hand or heart of God. This comes from the human and the demonic. So where do we find God on Good Friday? God the Father. Where do we find the Father on Good Friday? Not in Pilate condemning Christ to death on supposed um, you know, legal grounds, as it were. Not in 
Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin condemning Jesus to blasphemy. Where do we find God on Good Friday? We find God in Christ. So the cross is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. And to, to, to press it a little bit further, we must not view the cross as where Jesus saves us from God, but where God is revealed as Savior. And oh, I could just keep going on this. Uh, the cross is not where Jesus acts as an agent of change upon the Father. Mm. The Father is immutable. This is solid orthodoxy for 2,000 years. And the Son never acts as an agent of change upon the Father. The Son simply reveals the Father. So, throughout John's gospel, Jesus is saying, I only say what the Father says, only do what the Father does. The Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so, when Jesus is expressing forgiveness from the cross, he's not changing the Father. He's not coaxing the Father to do something that he wasn't already inclined to do. He's revealing the very heart of the Father to us. And this has been a particular problem within Western theology beginning with Anselm, who saw the cross as where God's honor is restored by punishing an equal, and then it then it became more egregious with Calvin, who saw it as God being able to satisfy his wrath, you know, mm-hmm. take it out on a whipping boy. And this, this you know, you're, again, you're importing violence with into the heart of the Trinity. Um, fortunately, the Eastern Church, the Eastern half of Christianity, uh, never went down that road. And they do, they, I mean, I'm pretty well versed in Orthodox theology, and I'm a conversation partner with them. I was the only non-Orthodox a couple of months ago speaking at the studies for Institute, the Institute for the Studies in Eastern Christianity. Um, sponsored by Union Seminary in New York. So I'm I'm in that world. And I can tell you, they really look askance when the West Mm -hmm. starts imagining that somehow the source of violence is from the Father and not Mm -hmm. from the principles and powers at the cross. So those are things we shouldn't say. And uh, let's be honest, a lot of books have been written along those lines of Mm -hmm. late, 20, 30 years And I'm grateful for every single one of them because it's a severe problem that needs to be corrected. But I didn't want to just camp out there. I've already touched on that in my book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. Mm -hmm. And so I deal with it more or less maybe in the first two chapters. But I but I try to go beyond that because I just don't want it to be because I haven't used I haven't even used the word yet. I'll use in this podcast. I just didn't want it to be yet another argument against penal substitutionary atonement Mm -hmm. theory. Which, which which I think needs to be completely repudiated. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of books doing that. And I didn't want to get stuck in just doing that yet for the umpteenth time. So, so I do address it, but I do it rather quickly. And I do it early in the book so that I can move on to some other things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really helpful because it, it, it takes us beyond the sort of the binary argument Um like conversations that we can get into, and and you what, you what you seem to do is to invite us deeper into this mystery. Going, okay, yeah, we it's not that, but let's look at a myriad of things that it is. And yeah, one of the things about penal substitutionary atonement theory that bothers me, besides the fact that it's wrong, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that <laughs> but beside that is even if it were true, I do not believe it is. But even mm-hmm. if it were true, it's problematic that it seems to. 
it seems to exclude any other interpretation. Right. Once you settle on that, you say the cross is that, and it's that alone. And well, what what about how the cross shames the principalities and powers? Oh, they go scot free. Mm-hmm. It, all it's all attributed to the action of the Father, in order so that the Father could be capable of forgiving. You know, satisfying justice as if, you know, well, who's in charge here? <laughs> is God beholden to some concept of retributive justice that he has to serve? That's problematic. But th- that PSA has been so dominant in the West since Calvin in s- certain circles that it is it is almost confused with the gospel. Yeah, right. And that's why that's why you get such a strong pushback. Somehow people imagine that I am I'm I'm you know y'all hear people say you know um, BZ doesn't believe in the cross. BZ just wrote a nineteen chapter book. <laughs> yeah, he did. It's it's I believe it. I mean I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified because I'm persuaded that everything that can be said about God and known about God is somehow present at the cross. So that right. when Paul says I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, he wasn't limiting what he could talk about. Right. I wonder. I wonder. That actually if, opens the door yeah. up to everything. I wonder if the reason that PSA took such prominence and and when it is accepted takes primary kind of like control is is the idea that it tends to reinforce a way of and an understanding of justice and peacemaking yeah. that empowers the principalities. And so it eclipses the beauty of the cross. The cro- the, well, the other centered I mean- Love. Adam can comment on what it's like in the UK, but Americans have a bad habit of almost equate justice is is only retributive justice. Mm. That is that justice equals punishment. Yeah. yeah. Justice does not equal punishment. Justice is rectification. Justice is reconciliation. Justice is setting right all that's wrong. But if you just if you just decide no justice is punishment, then you import that assumption into your atonement theology. And so the cross just becomes where God punishes Jesus, which right. is actually not even and true. It's the, it's the gospel I grew up with. Yeah. And it's the gospel I found pretty problematic. Um so it is prevalent over here too. Except I think and it ma- this stuff matters, and I'd love you to speak into this a little bit. Um, this stuff matters because it it frames the story that we live in, and the story that we live in defines our behavior. So we live out this. If we think God is violent, we live out violence. Mm-hmm. And if we, so, like the story, and if we think that the only way that we can be saved is by God forgiving, like an unwilling God actually choose forgiving us because he's had his arm up his back or like, then we're always trying to be good enough. We're always, and we're only really interested in that spiritual salvation. So it impacts how we view ourselves. It impacts how we view each other because it impacts how we view God. Like it defines our story in actually quite a narrow way when the gospel is way Mm. more expansive. and And I think what your book is doing here is doing that expanding of, now this story is so much bigger. Than yes. this narrow, yes. violent way of mm. of seeing God. Yeah, I mean, penal substitutionary atonement theory presumes that God is inherently angry, violent, and retributive. That it's part of His nature. 
Uh, I will argue that that is a projection, is a human projection upon God. We're angry, we're violent, we're retributive, and then we project that onto God. No, God is love. Yeah. And, 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 and the triune God is a home of continual mm. perichoresis love. Mm. There's nothing but love. There, there's no anger, there's no violence, there's no retribution within the Trinity. So... Mm. so a question for me as a church leader, then, because it, it does seem that we become so familiar with the crucifixion story that we kind of gloss over Good Friday a little bit. Like we have we have our moment, um, but we know the cross, we know what it means, we know how it fits into my salvation or whatever, and we rush to Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. And we all feel great on Easter Sunday because we've seen the songs of victory and death has lost its sting and all this sort of stuff. But we've, and we miss the, depth and and beauty and ugliness and the you know i think in your book you talk about a banality of religious cliche a banal religious cliche um that is barely noticed how do we as church leaders um reinvigorate re help our church reimagine um refocus revisit with um hearts that are wanting to re-explore what the cross means. How, how do we get past that over-familiarity that has led to um, triviality? Yeah, that's, that's a lot of what I'm trying to do mm. in the book. And I think you have to start by attempting at least to recover something, something of the original scandal. Uh, before I go into let, let me just because I do want to say this that whenever I speak of the cross or the crucifixion, the crucified Christ, I always mean the crucified and risen Christ. Yeah, I mean, with they're, they're always assumed together mm-hmm. without the resurrection. I mean, one of the things that people mistakenly assume is that somehow the crucifixion of Jesus was rare and exotic. Mm-hmm. No. Crucifixion was appallingly common. And one of the scandals is that Jesus didn't even have the dignity of his lone, his own lone death. I mean, he was but one of three that day. Mm-hmm. And without the without light emanating from the empty tomb, we we would never have heard of Jesus. If Jesus of Nazareth was just another failed yeah. Messiah, we'd have never heard of him. So when when I talk about the cross, I mean I mean all of yeah. it, the whole Paschal yeah. mystery, death, burial, resurrection, yeah. all tied together as one. Um, but if if we're going to liberate the cross from banality and cliche, I think it would help to, to assist people to regain something of the original scandal. Mm-hmm. The improbable rise of Christianity in those first three centuries— is one of the most remarkable events in history. I mean, the idea that a religion that centered on a crucified Galilean began to rise and grow in the Roman Empire. I mean, Paul acknowledges, says, look, Mm. this is offensive in the Jewish world. The idea of a crucified Messiah is highly offensive. And in the Gentile world, it's nuts. It's just fool. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. I mean, yeah, there's you. You have you have your Greco-Roman pantheon of gods, and and you, but they they these are the gods of glory and of might. 
The idea of a crucified God, you would give that religion zero chance of taking root and growing up in the Roman Empire of the first, second, third centuries, but it did. And something of the scandal of it can be um, seen in the Aleximenos graffiti. Around the year 200, a crude graffiti was etched into a wall, a plaster wall in Rome, and it depicts a crucified man with the head of an ass, you know, a donkey, and then someone standing there worshiping this crucified donkey. And someone in misspelled Greek had written, Aleximenos worships his God. Mm-hmm. All right, it's very clear that Aleximenos was one of these early Christians. And someone thought this was absurd, ridiculous, and deserved nothing but to be mocked. And so he depicts Christ. You know, any God that, that is a crucified God must be an ass. So he depicts a crucified man with the head of a donkey. Aleximenos is there worshiping, and Aleximenos worships his God. And we might wonder what Aleximenos thought about this derision. And we may know, because in an adjacent room, another graffiti written in another hand reads, Aleximenos is faithful. <laughs> God bless Aleximenos. All right, so as long as we're talking about graffiti and cartoons and things like that, there is, there is a cartoon I describe. It's The, the book has... Uh, 16 images. It didn't have this one, mainly because we couldn't find the cartoonists to get permission, but I don't know if IVP would have let me do it. Any- they might. I They're good people. But um, I saw a cartoon one time. I describe it in the book, even though it's not reproduced there. Two aliens have landed on planet Earth. They've just got out of their flying saucer. This is the, this is the first time to planet Earth. They just showed up. Mm-hmm. And they happen to have landed right by a life-size roadside crucifix, the kind you will see in Spain quite commonly. And these two aliens are looking at this crucifix, and one alien says to the other, you know what we need to do? We need to get the F out of here. That's what we need to do. <laughs> I love that. I love that comic. It's, well, it's, it's, it's yeah. both profane and profound. Because what the genius, yeah. I don't know what the cartoonist's intent was, but what that the genius of that cartoon is it literally helps you see mm crucifix through the eyes of an alien. And all they can conclude is this planet must not be a safe place and they're not wrong. So so I would start, I would start there with, with, with the absurdity, the the anthropological absurdity. I mean, think about it. Um, We are an artistic species. We're given to artistic endeavor. We've done it from the beginning. I mean, the cave paintings of Caceres, Spain are 64,000 years old. We've been doing this a long time. But the most replicated artistic story image in human history is that of a man nailed to a cross. Mm. That's got to say something. Right. And so, so I I want people to to be, the, the starting point would be, would be to be shocked once again, mm. to see it for what it is, that that if it's not what we confess as Christians, that this is the crucifixion and resurrection of the Logos made flesh that in some way, somehow saves the world, mm. then either the idea, the idea of a crucified God is either blasphemous mm. or ludicrous. But there's no, there's not really any middle ground, so... Mm. I would start somewhere like that, but but then 
one of the reasons I use a lot of references in the book to art, mm. literature, and film mm. is because this activates a different area of our thinking. We're, we're used to just, yeah. oh, you're going to talk about the cross? Okay, I'll go into the theological parlor of my brain. And I was inviting people, no, let's go to the movie theater. Let's go to mm. some of the great novels. Let's go to the art gallery and talk about the cross. So yeah. I spent a lot of time doing things like that. And I know this is uh, like, and I think that's something that I really appreciate. And I really, um, I see, I see the power of because so often we use words to define and confine, to restrict. Mm. And it seems to me that language at its best, often poetic language, and yes. I, mean, I suspect this is one of the reasons mm. the Bible leans to poetry more than it leans to um, history, I guess. But um, the language at its best transcends and elevates and expands, um, invites us into a space beyond the words, like so we can go beyond. And, and in the space beyond, Maybe we can grasp something of God that isn't definable by language on its own. And and I think when you point to and you you have this theme through your book of various like 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 paintings and pieces of art or pieces of music and um I think language at its best, I think art at its best, um, helps us transcend the confines of the language that we have. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the subtitle of the book is A Theopoetics of the mm. Cross, which by which I mean that this is an attempt to have a conversation about the theological implications of the cross, but done so at least at times in more poetic language rather than the kind of arcane academia, uh, which I can do that. I mean, I know that world. But I choose not to. <laughs> I think there. I mean, prose may be more precise. Look, if you have to assemble a bicycle, you don't want the instructions in poetry. I get that. <laughs> but 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 if if prose is more precise, it's also more limiting. Yeah. And it's it's the language of the intellect. Yeah. Uh, poetry involves the intellect, but its real wellspring is more the heart, the spirit. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we're going to need to take people if they're going to be interested in any kind of conversation about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So art, poetry, film, song, all of that is pretty prominent throughout the book. And what's interesting is I didn't, I didn't have to, I never sat down and said, okay, for this chapter, I need to come up with a film for that. It's just sort of where I live. Right. And so it just—it wasn't hard for me. It more or less just happened. Yeah. Uh, but but what I did was I I followed my own instincts. I I thought about the cross like I think about it, mm -hmm. so that it wasn't just limited to you know a section in my library of theological works on the cross. Mm. So no, I mean I think about the cross listening to John Coltrane's "A Love Supreme." Mm. I think about the cross, you know, watching Terrence Malick's A Hidden Life. Mm. I think about the cross when reading uh, William Butler Yeats' The Second Coming poem. And all of, so anyway, that's that's what I'm doing in the book. At Jesus Collective, something that we say pretty often around here is that God looks like Jesus and all scripture is properly read through him. 
And I think mm-hmm. you're, you're drawing us more into this mystery um, as we look at the crucified God. And I'm curious, why is it important or why would you say it's important to have the crucified God at the center of our theology? Mm-hmm. Why, why do we need to start here? Because one of the lines you used in the book is that everything that can be said about God properly is present at the cross. Yeah, I'll give you another line, which is a, I'll, I'll let you all in on a secret. This is a, a sentence that, I, um, that I've used in my last 10 books, the, the exact same sentence. And I always kind of wonder if an editor is ever going to catch it and say, didn't you just say that exactly in another? I say, I say it in every book. And it's, it's really a paraphrase of, it's, it's Hans Urs von Balthasar from Love, Alone, Love Alone is Credible, although he doesn't actually say this. He says something kind of like it, and then I paraphrased it to being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. Mm-hmm. And I love that sentence so much that I've put it in every book I've written and nobody's ever, I've never had anybody comment, don't you always say that? Yeah, and I'll put it in the next one too. Uh, because if we don't see God as most clearly revealed at the cross, then we move towards some form of triumphalistic warrior God. Mm. And uh, there's there's an impulse. There's always an impulse to do that because we want we want our tribal deity. We want mm. this God that will crush our enemies on our behalf. I mean, our human enemies. And um, and it's it's very easy to distort. Christianity into the state religion of some form of Christendom and to just use it as that which blesses the waging of war and all of that sort of thing. And so that's why, I mean, I bring several critiques, but I go pretty aggressively in one chapter after uh, the Patriarch of Moscow, Kirill. You know, I mean, this, this, really the, well, the highest ranking Orthodox leader in the Russian Orthodox world who, you know, is calling Putin's rapacious war upon Ukraine a holy war mm-hmm. and simply supplying all of the religious propaganda necessary to assure people that God is on our side. And if we don't understand that Christ wages war in the manner of dying upon a cross, then we trade in our cross for a sword and we're back to, you know, the Crusades or whatever, and the, the, the most bleak and, and distorted forms of Christianity. And we have a long history with that. We have 17 centuries from Constantine on. Eusebius, you know, the court historian, says that that Constantine on the eve of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge had a vision and saw a cross with these words, in this sign you shall conquer. I don't think it ever happened. I don't think anything has ever happened. I think this is Eusebius giving us his propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, but you understand what, what that is. Mm-hmm. In this sign you shall conquer. Conquer is a euphemism for kill. Mm-hmm. In this sign, in the sign of the cross, you shall kill. Well, that's the, that's that's the undoing of the very meaning of the cross, because among the myriad of things that we see at the cross, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. And we discover that Jesus is willing to die for that which he is unwilling to kill. But if we don't keep the cross central, then we 
replace it with a sword. I I talk about this in my book, A Farewell to Mars. I remember the well, the one and only time I visited the Air Force Chapel, the the, the chapel at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and this you know this is a military institution, and they have a chapel there. The outside is is the architecture's like. I don't know. I forgot the number. I think it's 18, 18 fighter jets kind of ascending that create the spires. It's, it's just God awful, brutal architecture. But when I went inside where there would be, it's a beautiful chapel in one sense. I mean, it's the stained glass and the vaulted ceiling and all that kind of a modernist, but where there should be a cross there is literally, you guys can look it up, you know, you can Google, you can find it, literally a sword. Yep. Because of the hilt, the nature, it's it's a, a tapered blade coming to a point, metallic. It's a sword. And then yeah. the the hilt is an airplane propeller because it's the Air Force Academy. I thought, well, I was just, I just stood there aghast. And I, I turned to my wife and said, this is, this is no chapel of christ this is a temple of mars yep. and that's that's an example of being right. almost a little bit too on the nose but if we don't keep the cross central we will in some way yeah. replace it with the sword and you speak into this idea of violence I, I was struck like you know most books i read most people i chat to when we get back to when we go back to like oh this is the root of sin or this is the root of evil we they go back to genesis 3 i and yeah. I do that in my book. And um the but you didn't you, you focus much more on Cain and Abel um mm-hmm. and as the root. And can you just talk a little bit about how this Jesus who suffers with us, who doesn't overcome with violence um and dominating and over like he he suffers on the cross. How does how does the cross speak to the problem of evil and of violence? Well, the big story the Bible tells, after things go wrong in the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve with their two sons, Mm. Cain and Abel. Cain is a tiller of the ground. He's an agriculturalist, which, you know, gives rise to sophisticated civilization. Abel is a uh, herdsman, shepherd. Anthropologists will tell us that as... As human civilizations became more complex, there was tension between the agriculturalists who saw land as something to be owned and thus fought over, and the nomadic herdsmen who didn't have that concept. God warns Cain, says, look, sin is crouching at your door. I know what you're thinking. You must master it. You must overcome it. He didn't. He was overcome, and he looks at his brother, doesn't really want to acknowledge him as brother. He calls him other and enemy. And then in a field, because that was probably what the dispute was over, he rises up in the field and kills his brother, lies to himself and God about it. I, I don't know where my brother's key. Am, am I my brother's key? I don't know where he is. Do I, do I take care of my – am I just take care of my brother like he does his smelly sheep? I mean, I hope we know the answer by now. But then the then story gets interesting. Um Cain is not, Cain is marked, but it's not a curse. It's a mark of protection, mercy, so that no retribution can come to him. But he does move east of Eden, 
and founds the first city. Right, this is mythological language, so you know, work with me here. So what is the Bible saying? The Bible is saying our civilization is founded on the assumption that the other is not brother but is enemy and that we had all every right to kill them. And so all of our great empires are built on the bodies of slain Abels that we we hide with myths and monuments and, and uh, anthems and parades and holidays and flags. We hide the bodies. And the cross exposes all of that. The, the cross is where Jesus Christ refounds the world. So you, you remember there's that moment when he's before Pilate, which is absolutely fascinating. This is why great novelists just can't leave this alone. The idea of Christ being judged mm. by Pilate. I mean, this, this is a fascinating concept. Pilate's only interested in one thing. Are you a king? And Jesus, you say, I'm a king. For this purpose, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Whoever is of the truth listens to what I have to say. And Pilate very cynically says, what is truth? And then there's a break in their interaction. Jesus is taken away and scourged, brought back. This is, you know, then behold the man, H.A. Homo, all that. And Pilate renews his interrogation, but now Jesus doesn't respond. And this frustrates Pilate. And Pilate says, don't you get it? Don't you know? Don't you understand that I have power to release you and I have power to kill you? Well, this is Pilate answering his own question. This is Pilate's truth. Pilate's truth is, look, the world is run by those who have the most power to kill. That's the only truth I know. That's what Pilate would say. And so the world from Cain onward is organized around an axis of power enforced by violence. At the cross, Jesus refounds the world around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. And that is what's drawing people into the world to come. Jesus says, and I, if I am lifted up, a euphemism for crucifixion, will draw or drag, actually what it says, all people to myself that over time, uh, the, the, over time, the world is to gain a new organizational axis. No longer will it be power enforced by violence, but love expressed in forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So, Brian, as you aptly say many times, being disguised under a crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of God. Can you share with us, like, where's the, where's the Father? Where's the Spirit? Like, when we begin to think about God is this one who suffers. Mm-hmm. God is the one who has laid down all, all attachments to mortality in pouring out his, his life upon the cross. Um, can you can you help us see the cross in a trinitarian manner? Why is it, as you'll say in the it, book, it, it's co-suffering? Put, uh, it's why I put in the book um, various art images, and for that one, uh, I use Botticelli's Trinity, mm. and this is a 15th century Renaissance in Florence, and it depicts. Uh, I'm going to look at it here. Open it up. It depicts 
Christ crucified, a typical crucifixion. But then there is the Father is behind the cross, holding up the cross, looking with, I don't know, I guess I would call it love, anguish, compassion upon his suffering son. And then between the Father and the Son is the dove of the Holy Spirit. Um and, and this is this is where I kind of I, I do some daring things, although I'm actually really working a little bit more with um, uh, Sergius Bogolkov, this uh, Russian Orthodox theologian from the 20th century. He, he was born in Russia, but after the Bolshevik Revolution, did most of his work in, in Paris. And he says this. This is uh, this is Bogolkov. The crucifixion of the Son takes place on earth, but it is co-experienced in heaven as well. The entire Holy Trinity is co-crucified with the Son. God so loved the world. The dogma of redemption, like all things in Christianity, must be understood in a Trinitarian manner. That's Bogolkov. I comment on by saying, to speak of the entire Holy Trinity as co-crucified with the Son is daring language, to be sure, but it is far more theologically sound than doing violence to the Trinity by positing the Son as an objection of the Father's wrath. The cross is the scene of a love supreme, not a scene of divine domestic violence. The cross is nothing other than the ultimate triumph of divine love. When we look upon the cross, we should, above all, see love. Um, and so, one of the early reviews, I think most of the reviews I've seen have been positive, for which I'm grateful, of The Wood Between the Worlds, but one, the, the, the entire review was not negative, but they pushed back on the idea that the father experiences suffering with the crucifixion of his son. And, and this came up in our leadership team meeting last week. Mm. 12 of us in there and this review had come up and we we're just talking about it. And one of the, one of the team members is not a theologian. You know, he's, he's a musician actually is what he is. And he's central to a lot of the things that we do, but he's not a, he's not a theological reader or anything like that. And he's listening to us talk and he goes, wait a minute. There are people that believe that the father didn't suffer. When, when Jesus was crucified, oh, yeah, 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 that's one extreme version of impassibility and something like that. He said, so you're telling me you see you can see your kid crucified and you don't suffer. Mm. <laughs> and I think he kind of just cut through all of that, yeah. uh, all of that theological denseness and just said, what kind of father would not suffer if his son is nailed to a tree? Mm. Yeah. Our mutual friend, Brad Jerzak, likes to say, because I've asked him a million questions on the cross. He actually has a really good book on it. Um, yes, he does. Uh, what's it called again? Uh, Stricken by God, question mark. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah I one. love that. I, I love that book. Same. I uh, mean, he likes, boy, well, let me yeah. give a plug for Stricken by God, which was edited by, I mean, Brad has a bit in there, but it's, I don't remember how many, it's about 20 or more theologians contributing uh, essays on the cross. And it's really a critique of penal substitutionary atonement theory. I think it's excellent. Yeah. I don't think it's got the credit it deserves. Yeah. Uh, but he says in, in that book, and he said to me personally several times, he's like, there's never a point 
on the cross or in Christ's death where he ceases to be fully God. Right. The union of the Trinity, it never ceases. Even in Yeah, maybe we should comment, because I don't yeah. comment on this in the book. I, I, it's, it's an oversight on my part. You know, you work, you work, you work, you work on a book, you get it as best you can, and then it comes out and you go, oh, I should have addressed this. <laughs> but that's, that's the nature of writing. Um, you know, there's the famous cry of dereliction. Mm-hmm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which I think a lot of people will know is a quotation from Psalm 22, 1. Yeah. And I would explain that as an existential reality, but not a theological fact. The son experiences a sense of abandonment, just like most of us have. Yeah. All of us have felt times when we, where is God? I feel like I'm abandoned. My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God has not forsaken us. And if you just follow that psalm all the way to the end, you discover, in fact, that's the case. Let me read it. It says, verse 24, For God did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face. Right, exactly. There it is. But heard my cry. How fascinating that we use the very statement of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, to say God somehow turned his face. Yeah, and the point of that, though, and there's a lot of points, one of them, though, would be that the cross, among the many things it is, is divine solidarity with all who suffer. Yeah. So that if you are going through a dark night of the soul, some particular trauma, sorrow, grief, and there erupts out of you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Understand those words were on the lips of the Mm -hmm. son of God. And and he experienced that same kind of sense of abandonment. But remember, even but but still, in the end, it's Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, which which can mean a lot of things. But one way of thinking of it is, Father, it's in your hands now. I can't do it anymore. And so we go through that journey. My God, my God, where are you? Father, it's in your hands now. But Jesus goes with us through that because he, too, has participated in that. So, we're, um, we're in our Lent Easter season. Um, I'm interested in, because um, this book is really timely for that, so thank you for that. Um, as a church leader, it's great to have resources we can give to our churches and go read this, study this, have a look, have a have a talk through this. But um, I'd love you to talk um, a little bit more about how we um, can um, lead our churches, lead our congregations um, into um, greater to embrace mystery yeah. and let go of certainty in this season of Lent, because that's where the beauty and the depth and the disruption is that comes from God. Like, How can we disrupt the certainty of our congregations to a point where they can embrace the mystery and the awe and the wonder in new ways? I think you're you're saying it. You approach it as mystery. Mm -hmm. And mystery is not 
a problem to be solved. Mm. It is a certain way of encountering the divine. Modernity has um, a, a very pronounced distaste for mystery. Right. Modernity really kind of reached its peak uh, at the end of the 19th century, going into the 20th century. There was just a lot of hubris. And and so you think about what passed for mystery. You think about Sherlock Holmes' mystery novels. Well, there's no mystery at all. It's elementary, my dear Watson. If you weren't just so daft, Dr. Watson, you could figure this out. And, and that sort of thinking still hangs around us somewhat. Uh, Christianity... Well, at least certain versions of it is still way too modern, and we need to get beyond that or go back to pre-modern. Or we need we need to find room for mystery, and that is that I can stand in the presence of the reality of Christ crucified and not have to be able to explain it in one or two sentences. That instead, no, it can speak this way and this way and this way and this way. Mm-hmm. And maybe at times it's best to resort to various forms of art. Um, and it's, it's why I talk about, in the book, making a distinction between the role of the journalist and the role of the artist. One of the more amazing things is that the cross can be and has been depicted in terms of beauty. That's why you find it in art galleries. You know, all around the world. I mean, go to any great art gallery in the Western world and you'll find mm. dozens, if not hundreds, of crucifix paintings and that are that are legitimately beautiful. Yet, was it beautiful? I mean, if you ha- if if we had a journalistic photograph mm. of the events of Good Friday cir- circa AD 30. You know, some journalist had gone out there with his camera and taken a picture of him. We have that. We might look at it once, regret that we had, mm. and never look at it again. Yeah. Because all we would have is the raw data of the materialist fact. Uh, so when artists depict the crucifixion of Christ in terms of beauty, whether it's Fra Angelico or Mantegna or whoever, Botticelli, uh, are they doing something wrong? No, they're doing something entirely appropriate. Uh, the role of the artist and the role of the journalist are not the same. The, the, the journalist just gives us the raw data. The artist is to alert us to what we've overlooked. Mm. And so, for example, with Vincent van Gogh's Starry Night, I mean, that's you know one of his most famous paintings, but that isn't a journalistic reproduction of what a Starry Night looks like, which you see on van Gogh's canvas. But van Gogh is saying, no, no, no. Pay attention. Wake up. You're missing it. What's happening on my canvas is what should happen in your soul when you behold the grandeur of a starry night. Mm. And so, however we do it as pastors and leaders and teachers and preachers, I think we need to take a more artistic Mm. approach to talking about the cross, not trying to swiftly supply answers, but lean into the pathos, lean into the mystery, lean into all sorts of things, and then employ other means other than just classic theology, use use art, song, film, poetry, novel, literature, all of that to help us, help people engage with the cross in a fresh way and with an artistic eye. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm it not... 
I'm not trying to be difficult, but I just think I just think that's what that's what this book is for. I think the book itself will help. Yeah. Help people figure out how to do that. Yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to um, hanging out in uh, Minneapolis. Um, oh man, it's gonna be great. <laughs> yeah, at the at the Unite conference. Because um, yeah, I mean, it's great to connect with you online, but to hang out in the room and take these conversations yeah. further is, I think, is going to be really great. But um, can you just um, like? Could you talk a little bit about, you know, what are you bringing to that space? Um, what are you looking forward to about that space? Why should people come along and um, and hang out with us? Because Jesus Collective is part of that which I find most hopeful for the church. Um, people who are not wanting, people, Christians who I would describe as conscientious objectors to the culture wars. <laughs> and and that, that, might, that we might use that. I don't know. I like it. Um, And so I don't know exactly what I'm going to do yet. It's still February. This is in April. But but I want to definitely push us toward leaning into the mystery and how the Christian soul in the 21st century can be re-enchanted by Christ. We've gone through the disenchantment of modernity, and yet people long for this mystery. They, right. they long for a sacramental sense that there is another world that somehow we can find connection with. And so, and then with Jesus at the center of that. I mean, I like, one of the things I like about the Jesus Collective is that it's got Jesus, right? <laughs> and it unabashedly, you know, I'm just a Jesus freak that's 64 years old. That's what I am. And I, and I don't aspire to be anything other than a Jesus freak for the rest of my life. And I get the sense that Jesus Collective is a little bit like that. Right. Mm. Brian, this has been a rich time. Um, you pointed us to mystery, which is the presence of more meaning than we can explain. Um, I wonder if it would be appropriate to just close our time today. Um, if you could pray for all our listeners mm-hmm. that are leaning in that have this longing for mystery that mm. have this longing to see the cross afresh um, that maybe feel tired and without hope that they would encounter the hope. Uh, yeah. Pray for us in the season of Lent uh, to close our time together. Lord, I pray that especially during this season, the church is observed for a very, very long time that it really would be a journey with Jesus, to Jerusalem, to Good Friday, to the cross, and then through to the other side, to the world to come, to the world of resurrection, to the world of new life. And I pray that as we, well, I'm I'm thinking about Thomas, who said, uh, let us go to Judea with him, that we may die with him. Lord, I pray that this would be a season that we journey with Jesus and that we could die with Jesus to that which we need to die to. Mm. There's things that we need to die to, but we die to it so that there'll be resurrection. So, Lord, I pray that that the season of Lent for my fellow pilgrims would be a journey, yes, into the liberation of death and into the newness of resurrection life. And I pray that joy and peace would quietly be present every step of the way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.
Amen. Thank you again, Brian. And to our listening audience, here's to keeping Jesus at the center. God is at work raising up a movement of churches, ministries, and disciples all around the world that are passionate about advancing a more united and hopeful, Jesus-centered, Jesus-looking kingdom. If you're a listener today, I'm sure you can see and feel that. So, can I ask you today if you'd help us amplify this Jesus-centered movement? Can you share the podcast, blog, and social media channels? We are on a mission to equip a centered set vision of a church renewed by Jesus by investing in the renewal of its leaders. Would you consider making a financial investment in Jesus Collective today? Is anything stopping you? If not, go to JesusCollective.com. Your investment means we can advance and amplify this Jesus-centered movement, investing in pastors and Christian leaders globally. Hey, and don't forget to make sure to check out our website for upcoming events. We've got a ton of great things happening.